I think too many of us spend too much time thinking like preachers, prosecutors, and politicians. That line caught my eye because I'm a preacher, and uh, we have a number of preachers in this house. <laughs> What's more than that, we have our fair share of politicians and attorneys as well. And so uh, that line caught my attention. It's from an article about a book. The book is entitled, Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. And I haven't read the book. I think I might. It seems interesting. It's written by Adam Grant, who is an organizational psychologist. I didn't even know that was an occupation. Um, but it has some good things. It says it's important for people to be more humble about their knowledge and to stay open to learning and changing their minds. I think that's true. I think that's good. In this article, he talks about barriers to changing your mind. One of them is cognitive entrenchment. Just the idea, this is what I know, and, and I don't like changing my mind. And I think we can also find ourselves, as followers of Christ, in maybe theological entrenchment or applicational entrenchment, where that's how it's always been done, so that's what we're always going to believe and do. Another barrier is just motivation. I'm comfortable with the way I've always done things. It makes me feel and look stupid if I admit that I was wrong. It's easier just to stick to my guns. And that's when we get in preacher mode, prosecutor mode, or politician mode. Preacher mode is, I'm convinced I'm right. Prosecutor mode is, I'm going to convince you that you're wrong. Anyone guess what politician mode is? Is there's really no connection to what I say and what I want you to believe about what I say. I'm just going to lie. Whatever it takes, I'm just going to convince you. And uh, we need to not be thinking like that. We need to be open-minded. And he says to think like a scientist, which means you have a theory and then you, um, you, you examine the evidence. And you allow the evidence to shape what you believe. And we come to church for a reason. For many reasons, but one of the reasons we come to church is that we come to this book and we lay before it our beliefs, our understandings, our convictions, our feelings, our behavior, and then we open the book and we let the light from the book shine on those things and we seek alignment. And so we come week in and week out with open minds ready to rethink how we behave and what we believe, ready to have renewed minds so that the new man inside of us, the spiritual man, is constantly getting stronger as the old man is constantly getting weaker. And we do that by the renewing of our mind, and we cannot renew our mind without coming to this book. And today we return to our annual theme, this year's point of study, is seeing Jesus in all Scripture. And so that's what we've been doing. We took a little break in Colossians, but we're going to return to that theme of seeing Jesus in all Scripture. And we've been doing it. We've been going through the Old Testament, looking through the lens of the New Testament, and looking for types of Christ. Where do we see Jesus in the Old Testament? And of course, our cue, the reason why we're doing this comes from Luke chapter 24 and verse 27, where Jesus is walking those disciples after his resurrection. And remember what he says to them. He says, it says that beginning 
with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And that's what we want to do. We want to go through and look through all the scriptures and see where do they point to Christ. And, and we also are taking heed to the warning that Jesus gave uh, the Pharisees in John chapter 5 and verse 39 and 40, where he says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, but you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. And so that's important for us, well-bibled individuals, that when we come to scripture, we're not just gaining knowledge, but we are coming to Christ. And with that in mind, that's why we're going through the Old Testament. We're finding types of Christ. Pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. Intended pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, that even, even before Christ, um, Jew, good Jews should be able to read these passages and anticipate the Messiah. Now I want to take a moment to differentiate between a type and allegory. Right? Allegory is a, is a form of biblical interpretation that I think is sloppy. Um, it's not helpful. Allegory denies literal interpretation. It works off the fundamental assumption that what is plainly written is not what is plainly meant. It, it finds symbolism in every detail. It treats the scriptures like one giant parable. And there's problems with that method of interpretation. There's some old church fathers that use that manner of interpretation. There's people around today that use that manner of interpretation. There's problems with it. Let me give you some examples. So, for instance, Jesus gets in a boat. He's got disciples in the boat. They cross the sea. They get to the other side. And allegorical interpretation, the boat means something. The sea means something. The people in it means something. Where they're going means something. And the only thing you can really be sure of, it's not about Jesus getting a boat going across the ocean. The sea. And so, that, in, and there's all kinds of really bad examples. Another example would be in 1 Samuel 1, the man has two wives, Paniah and Hannah. And, I, and, some, and there is a teaching that Paniah represents conversion and Hannah represents grace. And so when you're finding a wife, obviously you shouldn't have two wives, but you need to find the one woman that best embodies grace and conversion. I don't even know what that means. I don't know why, how you could possibly come to that conclusion. One more example is the ark, in Noah's ark, which actually I do believe is a type of Christ. We see that in 1 Peter. At least it's, it's hinted at in 1 Peter. But an allegorical understanding I've heard preached is, okay, the ark is like one big coffin, and you need to die to self. And then it's covered in pitch, and that's the sanctification of Jesus Christ. And the ark was divided into many different rooms. And just like in the house of God, there's many different denominations. But we're all saved. The problem is, you can almost come up to any conclusion you want, right? With allegorical interpretation. For instance, put this painting up on the screen above me. Uh, this real color. There it is. Okay, so what do you see when you look at that? I see um, mountains and a beach and beautiful ocean, but if I look at it a certain way, I can kind of see the profile of an individual, maybe, of their face. Uh, if you turn it on its side, maybe it's like the duality of... If you turn it upside down, it looks like a desert scene in the sky above it. 
And you can look at this any way you want and come to any conclusion you want. And with allegorical interpretation, that's how they treat the Bible. They disregard authorial intent. And we don't, we're not doing that. When we go and look for types of Christ in the Bible, we're not just importing our meaning into the text. Type is different. When we use type to understand Scripture, we are recognizing um, and acknowledging that there is divine, eternal providence, that God shapes certain events in anticipation of Christ's coming. Uh, it believes that what is plainly intended is plainly written. And you're going to see as we look at some types today that I'm not inventing anything. It explains itself if you know where to look and where to go. And you spend enough time in the Word. When we study for types in the Old Testament, we are recognizing literary structure, foreshadowing, context, parallelism, motif. Motif is a recurring theme that keeps coming back at some um, element of that's repeated throughout to emphasize a particular theme. And one motif throughout Scripture is that of these three offices in Israel. Prophet, priest, king. And within that motif, you will find recurring themes, deficiencies, failures, prophecies, and types that all point to Jesus. And so that's what we want to look at today. Um, we want to look at prophet, priest, and king. We've put a chart in your notes for you to fill in as we go to maybe help you get a well-rounded picture of the prophet, the priest, and the king. And these three positions were all recognized leadership in Israel. For a time, there were judges, uh, but that was only for a certain period of time. But these were different positions. These three positions, they were um, all three received special anointing, which indicated the overdwelling of the Holy Spirit upon this individual for the purpose of their individual ministries. And as we look at prophet, priest, and king, we can think of their primary duties that each of them had. Um, the prophet, generally he declares, that's what he does. The priest intercedes, and the king shepherds. Um, and you'll, you'll see in that kind of directional relationship, a prophet is bringing God's word to man. A priest is bringing man's sins up to God. And then the king is God's presence with his people. And each one of these had the anointing, which represented and, and was accompanied with the Holy Spirit coming upon those who filled this office. And just to break down those responsibilities a little more deeply, the king, notice I didn't say the king rules, I said the king shepherds. That's because that's the primary connotation throughout the Old Testament of the kings. They were referred to as shepherds. The first two kings were shepherds, and God used them to shepherd his people. The king is detailed responsibility. He leads, he rules, he models. So he was the one that was... This was the replacement. When the, when the people were dissatisfied, they didn't want to be a nation without a king. They didn't want to be a nation that was just led by God through a prophet. So God gave them a king, but with the idea of he's going to be a shepherd to you like I'm a shepherd to you. And he needs to be as close to me as anyone else in the kingdom. And he's going to model what kind of citizens I want in my kingdom. And so he did lead, he did rule, but more than any of that, he, he modeled and shepherded the nation. 
Second, you think about what a prophet does. He declares God's word to men. He does this by speaking, preaching. We think of prophets as those that would uh, it would prophesy a future event. But re- and that, that definitely happened. But really, the prophecy of future events were most used as warnings. The prophet's main job was to warn the people of the error of their sin and to convince them, you need to change your ways. And here's, here's proof that my word is true. And then God would give a future event and he would... He would uh, prophesy that would happen, or he would be prophesying the judgment that is sure to come when the people wouldn't change their ways. And then the priest intercedes, and in the intercession, he's praying, he's offering sacrifices, and he's anointing. The priest would uh, anoint future priests. The priest would, um, often prophets would also anoint, but it would anoint the king. But every generation of priests had to be anointed, and the previous generation would anoint them. And so you see these three responsibilities in the intercession, praying for the people, offering sacrifices. And as we look at all three of these offices and how they point to Christ, we see that Christ was a prophet. That's just generally speaking, we see Christ was a prophet in his life. In his ministry, he he uttered uh, prophecies. And he gave warnings and he preached. In his death, he was the ultimate sacrifice, doing the work of the high priest, interceding on our behalf in his death. And then also we see that Christ demonstrated his kingship in his return. When he comes back, he's going to return as a king. And so we see all these roles in Christ's life, death, and in his return, he's prophet, priest, and king. But what's more than that? We see specific prophecies throughout Scripture that indicate that God never intended for there just to be sporadic prophets. Think about Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. If we can put that reference up there. Deuteronomy 18, 15, where Moses says, The Lord your God will raise for you a prophet like me from among you, It is to him you shall listen. And so we see that Moses, one of the first prophets, said, there's going to be someone else that's going to come after me, come from among you. He was referring to Jesus. We see uh, the kingship of Jesus is prophesied in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 11 through 13. He says, I will raise up. Now this this is where David is king. And David wanted to build a temple for God because David was feeling guilty. I'm in a house of cedar. God's dwelling in a tent. So I'm going to do a really good thing for God. I'm going to build him an amazing temple. And Nathan the prophet comes and he speaks to David and he says, this is what God says. I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. And he will build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. And I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Now, as many prophecies, there's overlap. There's an immediate uh, fulfillment of the prophecy, and then a long-term fulfillment of the prophecy. And immediately, he's talking about his son Solomon is going to build a temple. But long-term, what's he talking about? Because Solomon's reign did not last forever. And you go through the Psalms, and you see where he's recalling this. David is recalling this prophecy. And it's clear, Jesus is the one that's going to reign forever. And did Jesus build a house for God? 
We are the house. We, the people, are the house. Peter makes it clear. We are the stones being built up into a spiritual house. So Christ is the fulfillment of that. He is the eternal king that's building the house for God. And then in, in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, this is, a, this is a real amazing passage. We see the prophecy of Christ as a priest. It says, It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. But no, verse 14, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the crown shall be in the temple. So now we're seeing dual occupancy of these roles. It's prophetic that Jesus is going to be a priest that sits on the throne. And in the temple, where the priests serve, there's going to be the crown. And so we do have some examples in Scripture of two different offices being held. Samuel, for instance, was both a prophet and a priest. And David, he was a king and a prophet. And we have one example, a notable example, of someone who was both a priest and a king, and that was Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Um, and before we learn a little bit more about Melchizedek, I just want to make one, as we look at this chart, one final observation. And that is, no one occupied all three offices, ever. And each of these positions pointed to a portion of the fullness of Christ. If there could be one person that could faithfully, perfectly execute every one of these positions, well then that would be the Messiah. If you go back and you look in, in Exodus chapter 28 where the priesthood, for instance, is being developed, you can already see the deficiencies. It, 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 uh, Moses had to anoint the uh, priests so that they would be made holy. They're offering animal sacrifices. Someone that truly had a heart for God would question, when are we going to get a priest that doesn't have sins that need to be covered before he can come and take care of my sins? Or how, when are we going to have a sacrifice that takes care of this once and for all instead of constantly coming before him with animals? And so even in the deficiencies of these roles, and you constantly see kings that let the kingdom down and prophets that erred, and a, and a true follower of God would be longing for that perfect prophet, perfect king, perfect priest. And we see all those fulfilled in Christ. So let's look at all three of these offices fulfilled in Christ. And let's look at what that means for us today. And we're going to start by looking at Melchizedek. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 14 where we first see mention of Melchizedek. A priest in the order of Melchizedek. That's a quote from Hebrews chapter 6. And we're going to get there. We're going to start here in Genesis chapter 14 first. Melchizedek is a great example of types because if you were reading through the entire Bible, you would see him once here and it would be a head scratcher. You'd be like, hmm, that's weird. There's a lot of questions that aren't answered yet. And then you would get to certain psalms and you'd see that name. Oh, that familiar name comes up again. That's interesting. What does that mean? And then you'll get to Hebrews where you see the writer of Hebrews fully explained. So let's look at what happened here. The context in Genesis chapter 14 is uh, Abraham has rescued his nephew Lot. 
Abraham, you know, these are these are nomadic people. This is before Israel was a nation. So these are tribes of people, each family kind of like its own little nation state. Abraham was wealthy, so he had an army, and he went and he rescued uh, his nephew. And verse 17, after this return from uh, from the defeat of Chedorlaomer. I mutilated that name. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem. First time he's mentioned in scripture, and this is pretty much the fullness of what we know about him. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the God most now, if you were reading this for the first time, the reason why this would jump out at you is because, wait a minute, we don't, there's no priests yet. Israel's not a nation yet. The priesthood doesn't get developed until Exodus chapter 28. So what in the world is going on here? And he's not just some random priest. He's a priest of the God Most High. So that's interesting. And also, he's the king of Salem. That would probably catch your attention a little bit. What's the story of Salem? And, and my mind immediately goes to Jerusalem, Salem, Jerusalem. Hmm, that's interesting too. And then it's also puzzling what happens. Verse 19, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So now we've got confirmation. This definitely is a priest that's in line with the same God that Abraham worships. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but you take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I lifted my hand, uh, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high. So now we know they're talking about the same God, um, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and they share. And the share of the men who went with me. So he's like, I'm not going to get rich off of you. In fact, I'm going to give a tenth of everything to Melchizedek, a tithe. This also is interesting because, again, this is pre-law. People that preach against tithing, they love to go back to the Old Testament. They love to go to the law and say, we're not under the law anymore. But they don't go back far enough. This predates the law. Abraham giving a tenth to Melchizedek. So it's very interesting and maybe a little bit confusing. As you make your way to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 20, we're going to put a verse up on the screen from Psalm chapter 110, verse 4. But you go to Hebrews chapter 6, okay? You go to Hebrews chapter 6. Look at Psalm 110, 4 on the screen. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. That's interesting. What? That just seems to pop up out of the blue. What is God saying there? It's a prophecy for sure. It's referring to Jesus in the future. It can't possibly be referring to David because he's not a priest. It can't possibly be referring to Solomon because he wasn't a priest. It's referring to someone else that's going to occupy both priest and king. And Hebrews chapter 6 makes it clear for us. Hebrews chapter 6 explains it. Look at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 20, where it says, Jesus has gone 
as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 110. And now, in chapter 7, he's going to explain it for us. So we have... This is, this is how we know that this is a type of Christ. This is how we treat all of Scripture. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. We're not forcing our meaning into it. We're drawing out the intended meaning that's there. And he brings out, the writer of Hebrew brings out several items about Melchizedek that convince the writer and then convinces us that it's referring to Jesus. Look at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to Abraham a portion, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. The Hebrew word Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. We know Christ is the king of righteousness. Secondly, it says, he is also king of Salem. Because that was where he came from. He's the king of Salem, which means peace. Salem, shalom. It means peace. So now we see in this one person, we see an image of a king and a priest. He's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. What does he mean by that? Well, in, in Genesis, you see a lot of genealogies. Genealogy is important. It's very important to know who you came from. It's very important to know the line of the kings and all of that, the priests. You couldn't just have anyone be a, key, a priest. You had to be from the tribe of Levi. But here, this predates the tribe of Levi. And we have no idea who his mother is. We have no idea who his father is. We have no idea who his offspring is. We have no idea when he died. So figuratively, he's without beginning and without end. And the writer of Hebrews says, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. We have just this one little snapshot of Melchizedek, and he says that that's an indication, just like Jesus, without end, without beginning. And then he goes on, and he just continues and talks about how the patriarch of the faith, in Abraham, all of Israel was contained in his body, even that priestly tribe, the Levites. And all of Israel gave their tithes to the Levites. But here, through Abraham, the Levites give their tithe to Melchizedek. And so that means Melchizedek is a priest of a different order. And the writer of Hebrews is making the argument, you can read it for yourself, a greater order, a higher priest, a different priest than all others. And he concludes in verse 22, he says, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And so we have in all of this a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, this argument is clearly made, Melchizedek pointed to Jesus. We see it in three different passages of Scripture. Now real quickly, I want to look at the two other offices and how they were fulfilled in Christ. Keep your finger here in Hebrews. Don't, don't lose that spot because we're going to go back to it in a moment. But make your way back to Matthew chapter 12, just briefly. Matthew chapter 12, we see the two other offices referenced by Jesus, and he is the fulfillment of them. Okay, so Matthew chapter 12 and verse... Thirty-eight. Wow, I'm going to have to start wearing bifocals up here or something. That is crazy. Um, all right, where are we? I say verse thirty-eight. 
Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They wanted proof. They wanted him to perform for them. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So now we see Jesus saying, look, the whole whole prophet uh, story of Jonah was pointing to me. And the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus is saying, a prophet greater than Jonah is here. Something. He didn't say someone greater than Jonah is here. He said something greater than Jonah is here. What's he saying? He's saying a sign better than Jonah's sign. I mean, think about Jonah... A a, a great fish pulls up to the shore of Nineveh, spits out a prophet. He comes tumbling out, gets up, wipes himself off, and then starts prophesying about the judgment that's going to come on Nineveh. And they all repent in sackcloth and ashes. Probably it had a big effect on them was the fact that this guy just got spit out of a fish. So something's different about this guy, I'm going to believe it. And Jesus is saying, a better sign. I'm going to be dead for three days. And when I come out of the tomb... I'm going to be the ultimate prophet. You will see everything I've said will come true. And then he continues. So we see priests so far. We see prophets so far. But he continues. He says, the queen of the south, verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. King better than Solomon is here. Wisdom greater even than Solomon's is here. This is a big claim. We know from the Old Testament Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived on the planet. And Jesus is saying, wisdom better than Solomon's is here in me. As the king, I trump Solomon. And so we see priest better than Melchizedek. We see a prophet better than Jonah. We see a wisdom greater than Solomon's. And we see all fulfilled in Christ. Now, I don't want this just to be an interesting, informative sermon. That, that would just be a lecture. That's not why we come to the Word of God. The preacher's goal is to elicit worship. The preacher's goal is change, growth, progress, spiritual development. And we know that there is no growth without change. We all are in favor of growth, right? The hard part is changing. We all like to grow. We don't like to change. This brings me back to that article I was reading from earlier where he mentions an acquaintance of his, Danny Cannon. This guy is a Nobel Prize winning behavioral economist. It's another occupation I didn't know existed. But he says that this guy just lights up with joy when he finds out that one of his hypotheses is false. So I asked him, why do you look so excited when you find out that you're wrong? And he corrected me. He made it clear to me that no one enjoys being wrong, but that he takes real joy in finding out that he was wrong. Because that means now he's less wrong. 
when God points something out in your life, something that needs correcting, that, that's a good thing. It shows, oh man, you know what? I, I'm not going to mourn for what, I can't change what happened, but I can do something right now. So with this information of Christ as prophet, priest, and king, what are you going to do with that information? In real brief, in closing, I would just offer you three possible responses. First of all, flee to Jesus, your priest. I've been accused before of being a little melodramatic in 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 my preaching or in my witnessing. Oh, you're making too big a deal out of it. I get this right from the passage. So look at Hebrews chapter 6. Your finger's there. We'll put it back up. Hebrews chapter 6. Look at verse 18. By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anger of the soul, a hope that enters into that place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. It's about that inner holy of holies that only a certain priest could go there at certain times. Jesus went in there and he is our hope. And then it says, having become high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what is our response? Flee to Jesus, your priest. You got sin in your life? Flee to Jesus. He's the only one that can intercede on your behalf. He's the one that can guarantee you righteousness. He's the one that can forgive you, forever divorce you from your past. That's not you anymore. Now you are Christ, but you've got to flee to him. You've got to come to him. And then believers, brothers, sisters, we have to come to him every single day. We have to flee ourselves and come to Christ. Another response, respond to Jesus, your prophet. Respond to Jesus, your prophet. What does the prophet do? He proclaims. He brings truth from God to man. He declares and he preaches and he's calling for action. And we need to respond to Jesus as our prophet. Hear what he's telling us to do. It's so clear in the Gospels. It's not a mystery. What he's telling us to do, we just need to do it. He's our prophet. We need to heed his warnings and we need to respond. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 19 says that we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. That's the response to a prophet. You would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. I have a picture on my own, on my cell phone. I'll put that up there for you. That is Daniel. That was from when we were living in Chicago for just a few months in, in, in the training center to get ready to come and plant a church. And we were there over Christmas in a tiny apartment. And as a parent, it breaks your heart when, because of the circumstances, we couldn't put up a tree in the apartment. No Christmas tree, kids. You're not going to be able to see your presence under the tree. And, and so Rachel did what she could. And one of the things she did, she strung Christmas lights on the kids' beds. And we took, if ever there's a picture of sugar plums dancing in their heads, this is that picture. And what we, we took this picture, he fell asleep hanging on to that light. And it just breaks your heart. But what did he have? You know, he didn't have a Christmas tree. He didn't have all the presents under the tree. He didn't have his house that he lived in his whole life. All he had was this little light bulb that reminded him that Christmas is coming. I'm going to get to Grandma's eventually. And I have this on my phone, and I just think about, I've had it on my phone for years. And it reminds me of what we cling to, what we hope in. 
We see Jesus as a prophet, a priest, as a king, but only in part. He's a king, but he's not here right now. He's not ruling on the earth. We see brokenness all around us, and we experience it in our own life. When we cling to it, we hold on to it. It's our anger, and we're just maybe looking at one little light bulb right now, but one day the light's going to fill the whole planet, and it's going to be very plain to see, and you and I will be there to experience it if we flee to Jesus our priest, we respond to Jesus our prophet, And finally, we follow Jesus, our King. Remember, the King's job was to shepherd the people, to lead, rule, and to model. So we follow Jesus, we submit to Jesus, we emulate Jesus. Think about the song. The Queen of the South came up to meet Solomon because his reputation was so vast. If you were in the kingdom when Solomon was the king, you had a worldwide reputation. And if you traveled, you would want other people to know, my king... Solomon. And you wanted to be like Solomon. You are proud of your association with Solomon. And that's how we need to follow Christ, the best king that's ever existed. And he's coming back. And he's going to set everything straight. And we need to follow him. I hear the words of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me.